Tonight's reading is from Mark chapter 14, verses 27. Jesus predicts Peter's denial. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted empathetically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under, uh, under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this word. And we pray that as your Holy Spirit caused it to be written for our learning, your Holy Spirit would write it now into our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's, it's really great to be with you. It's really great to meet you uh, and uh, uh, have, a, have a moment to hear a little bit about how you come to be here. And we're going to really be praying for you. Um, 
it, you've been given quite a sobering reading. Uh, the first bit of it, if you will all fall away, you might think isn't necessarily kind of the most encouraging start to a reading at a confirmation service. You've been looking at a series of what is happening to Jesus at the end, but it's very powerful and very sobering, um, and I hope it will be a real blessing to you. It will, the, the truth is here, um, as we, in a sense, see the lowest moment for some disciples will actually help us in our own and in your discipleship as well. The, the title about the King of Kings being betrayed and abandoned is a description of what is happening to Jesus in these verses. I wondered in terms of thinking about your willingness to say you are a follower of Jesus and you want to be, you are, and you're becoming a disciple. Uh, a sort of subtitle of this uh, sermon and this, and this text might be uh, being, being a disciple in a dangerous world. Of course, 21st century Britain isn't uh, the religiously lethal environment that we read about here. Uh, we're not yet being arrested. People are not yet wanting us dead, like they wanted Jesus dead. Um, but the cultural landscape that you, sisters and brothers, as you're going on in your Christian journey from here, and you're willing to stand up publicly and say so, certainly has a greater hostility and uncertainty than when I became a Christian in my early teens, uh, not having been raised in a Christian home, and discovering the truth and reality of Jesus for myself. Yeah, I mean, there was mockery and contempt around. Uh, there was plenty of a, a, a attempts to kind of tone down the message of Jesus and the gospel to, to make it a bit more palatable to contemporary ears. But I don't think, unless my memory is playing me up really bad, that there was quite the same fear of serious reputational damage that people can now experience if they are public about their Christian faith, possible job loss or crucifixion on social media. Uh, that could await any of you and any of us uh, in the culture that we're here. So we're praying for you tonight and we're praying for one another that as you hear the testimony of these scriptures that uh, you will be strengthened actually in your confidence in Jesus as he is going to be with you and sustain you. He will know the worst about you, but he will bring the best for you. And that is what we're praying for you tonight. I don't know if you noticed that tantalizing last couple of verses of that passage about the young man following. We're not told how serious he was as a follower of Jesus, he was curious, certainly, but he flees naked because the pressure is too much. Tradition has it. It's no more than that. But that this is none other than John Mark, who is the author of the gospel. So whatever his faith was at this moment, when he's running away for his life, something has happened within him in order for him to be able to bring these words for us 
and for the life of the church down the centuries to hear what God can do even in the most dangerous circumstances that we could possibly imagine. And for all of us, because I know people will be coming as family and friends, and, and some of you, I, 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 I imagine, will be, I'm not quite sure about this, I'm glad for those who are making their profession of faith, but is it really true? And, you know, that somehow all of us, as we hear these words, and as we think about what happened, as we kind of slow down and look at what was happening to Jesus and his followers and his disciples near the very, very end of his life, God will move and work and bring you to think about what who is this man who who is he that he could do this and and what does that mean so really what i would like to share with you before the confirmation is as we think about this scripture just i i kind of have got three sort of questions in my head what did they do those disciples in the dangerous circumstances what did jesus do and what will we do? What did they do? They deserted him. Uh, verse 27, he says they will. And verse 50, they do. All of them. They leave him. They leave him to his fate. The focus is on Peter, James, and John, and Judas, but all of them flee, a very, very strong word. We're given insight into Peter, Simon Peter, the bravado, the one who's trusting in his own strength and competence. I'm, you know, I'm your man, Jesus, you know, I'm the guy you can trust here. And he is told about his denial before the desertion. But notice all of these guys, and they, these are guys here, there, there were women around in other places, they are confident still in their own strength and loyalty. They, they're fine when they're with him, but when there is threat, when there is danger, when people turn up with clubs and swords, it's a different story. They desert him, they deny him, Jesus says. And before they do that, they go to sleep. At least Peter, John, and James do. They become pillar apostles, but that's later in the uh, encounter with Jesus. Here, before the moment of extreme trial, before the arrest happens, Somehow, the strain, the exhaustion, the confusion, the tension, and their bodies shut down. Jesus rebukes them gently, very gently, considering what he was about to go through. But you don't get the sense that he was surprised. Sometimes, in the faces of danger, and desertion and denial, they're not the only options. Sometimes we may just want to go to sleep and hope when we wake up somebody else has sorted it all out. But the crisis and arrest come. 
and from sleep and desertion comes betrayal. And the most horrible irony in a way that this guy Judas, who is already in his own heart, deserted Jesus, now betrays him with a kiss. That sign of greatest intimacy now used to identify him to those who come to get rid of him. Sobering, isn't it? <laughs> We're reading it, as we'll see in a moment, in terms of what then has happened to them. So this, this is not the end of the story, but sometimes we need to get to the point of realizing it's the beginning of the story. That all our self-confidence, all our imagining that we're doing God a great favor by being part of the church or a disciple, there will be a moment or two when it just goes through sand in our hands and we know that it's nothing. And we know we are nothing. <laughs> and that can be a very hard moment. What does Jesus do? I wonder how you would describe Jesus as he is spoken of in these verses. He's the king of kings who's betrayed and abandoned, all right. That's who he is, and that's what will happen to him. But Mark invites us to go through this slowly. These last hours, these last days, all the other gospel writers do the same. If you want to go and look at those other gospel accounts as Holy Week and Easter approach, that would be a great thing to do uh, to really get this down, not just here, but here. And say, who is this person? And this has been something that I come back to all the time with these accounts. How did he keep going? How did he do this? And the first thing that we notice is the astonishing reality that he knows what is to happen. Look at 28 and 29. Not just what they will do, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. If you need more about the shepherd, go to Psalm 23. But it is the shepherd who himself who is going to go through the valley of the shadow of death. Because he can speak of being raised up. Jesus knows what is going to happen to him. And he keeps going. He's already explained in the Last Supper what this is going to be about. He's already welcomed the worship of Mary who anoints him. He knows that death is coming and he keeps going. He, he even, in these next verses, warns Peter of the coming denial, about which Peter is also in still denial, partly to help Peter not be completely devastated when it actually happens. And then he takes Peter and the others with him even to Gethsemane because somehow, even though he knows they're going to desert him, even though he knows they're going to go to sleep on him, he wants them to be with him. Mm -hmm. 
He knows that that prophecy of Zechariah, which was about the, the judgment and restoration of the people of God, is going to happen. But he wants the disciples to stay with him as long as they can. And so we come in these verses 32 onwards to this most intimate and extraordinary prayer. He knows what's going on. He keeps going. He prays. Please notice in verse 33, he is distressed, deeply distressed and troubled or agitated. I'm sure you folks don't think being a Christian is about putting on a brave face and keeping smiling. It isn't. Sometimes, sometimes, not always, but sometimes it will mean distress and agitation. And you might not think that's a great sales pitch for a confirmation service, but it's true. He is agitated and distressed, and he spells it out in his prayer. He prays for the hour to pass. He prays he might be spared for the suffering that is to come. I don't know if any time anyone, if you got on the ground, face down, and prayed and cried out to God, sometimes you need to pray like that. And Jesus says it's okay. And this is because it is not about avoiding the pain. It is not about avoiding the darkness. The prayer comes out of when you start to face it. And you get it in your sights and you cry out what is in your heart. And verse 36, you see, is not just about the physical suffering that is awaiting him. It is the spiritual suffering in, in, in these verses 36, verse 36 must be one of the most extraordinary verses in the whole Bible. It opens with Jesus using the most intimate word, way of speaking about God, Abba, Father, which he invites us to share in our prayer. And then in almost the same breath he says, please remove the cup from me yet not what I want, what you want. This is the cup of God's wrath. This from Isaiah 51, 22, when God speaks to his people, you shall drink no more from the bowl of my wrath, which is described as a cup of staggering. And Jesus knows he has to drink it. This is what his death would mean, not just the physical excruciation of crucifixion, but as the shepherd, the Lord, from God, would in himself freely bear the anger of God against the sin of the world, all of it. The sin of those deserting him, the sin of those coming to arrest him with sword and clubs. No wonder he was deeply grieved. 
And we are given this window into what Jesus did. Even as he knew what was to happen, even as he kept going, even as he understood what it all meant. He kept going, even when they were all fast asleep. One more thing he does, or rather does not do. When they come for him with the swords and the clubs because they are afraid of a violent confrontation, what does he do? He submits to them. He turns the other cheek to them. He loves his enemies who are them. He challenges them. He's not going to just kind of let it pass. You could have arrested me all the time, but when I was in the temple, he's not going to back out of challenging and pushing back, but he will submit to them because he knows he's been called to do it, because he needs to do it in order that he drinks the cup and that anger doesn't remain over us. See what it cost him. See what he has done for us. As you come in a moment to say you are turning from your sins and believing in him, see what he has done for you and for the world that is turning at this critical moment of history to dispose of its true king. I don't know, but I'm glad that God is angry with the sin of the world. I am glad that it matters to God that what is wrong in the world has a reaction. And it's not just the war crimes of Putin. It is the whole of humanity's sin, including mine and yours. Yet here we have at this moment God who has such righteous wrath coming to take it so that it should not cripple us or crush us in final judgment but be the very means by which we could be saved from it and brought into a place of forgiveness and new life not defined by sin, not controlled by its power, set free by the forgiveness and by the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is what he did. Even when those closest to him deserted him, denied him, went to sleep on him and betrayed him. What will we do? They're not here directly in the scripture, we're just given the narrative, but it seems to me a pretty good question to ask, particularly as we come to the confirmation now. And I'm hoping, guys, that even though that's a tough reading to hear, you're still not going to back out and that you're going to still go forward. 
that you will stay turning from your sins. You will stay on that recognition of what God's judgment meant on it, and you will go to the person who is saving you, who is your Lord, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who will lead you into a new life. He is the saviour of the world. He is the king of kings. He was betrayed and abandoned. But he says, I will go before you into Galilee after I have risen, because he wants to stay with us in our discipleship in a dangerous world. And I think all I want to say to you following these words from the Lord Jesus and this testimony of the Lord Jesus, given what his disciples then were doing around him, is just really two things. For you to know who you are in him. I'm sure you already know this, but if you needed any reminder, being a Christian is not depending on your strength, on your gifts, on your abilities, wonderful though they are. There will be, if you, if some people still, I don't know how they do it if, when they read the Bible, but some people still think of, of a Christian, if only I, it's a bit like New Year's resolutions, as if it kind of, if only I can be better at it. And of course, they discover that they can't and they give up. But this is Jesus bringing his disciples to a realization that they can't do it. And they need to get to that point before their brokenness enables them to be utterly dependent on Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit within them. And of course, if you read on what happens to Peter, to James, and to John in the Acts of the Apostles, you will see these men finally discovering who they are in Christ. And though they abandoned him and denied him, he still went through that for them. And he still met them. And he still commissioned them. And he still forgave them. And he still used them. And all of us who have come to Christ and those who've gone on in Christ, I am believing and praying and thinking that that will be true of every... All the Christian here, I hope, will know the truth of these words. That as we know who we are in Christ, even our failures are not the end of the story. And that you, my young friends, will know the same truth as you hear the word of the Lord after tonight, tomorrow, next week, in the days and weeks and months ahead, letting him show you what the future will be even when you get to the end of your own resources and strengths and your failures. And the second thing really follows from it, which is the thing that we see in Jesus astonishingly, even though he was in anguish and pain. Somehow, he was not afraid. In John's Gospel, he talks about, um, in the world you will have trouble, but don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. 
And when we know who Jesus is, when we see what he has done for us, when we are taken into the depths that this was painful for him and hard for him, when we have an understanding that he did that even when we were at our worst, and when we know that he comes to us after his resurrection, I love the words in the con God has called you by name and made you his own. Confirm, strengthen. The Holy Spirit's already in you, otherwise you wouldn't even be here. Strengthen the Holy Spirit in you that you will know that you can do this. You can be a disciple in the dangerous world, not in your own strength, but in the daily receiving and empowering of the Holy Spirit, bringing you the life of Jesus within you. And all I want to say in closing is this. I did think, I think I might have thought when I was a younger Christian, when I was baptized, as I actually ended up being baptized at the age of 17 and confirmed a little later on. I think I, think I imagined that when you got older as a Christian, it somehow got easier. I'm having to tell you that is not the case. Because over the last few weeks, I have found the temptations that the disciples faced just as acute. I would love to have gone to sleep many times. And just because you're a bishop doesn't mean you lose the capacity to deny or betray or desert. That can take many different forms. But I know the one in whom I believe. And as I face some of those challenges myself over the last days and weeks, and I have done a little bit of the praying like Jesus, if you want the truth, and I have been agitated and distressed, I have found him time and time and time, including arranging for me to come back to my old church, St. Tebbs, and be with you tonight, to be receiving the grace and the encouragement and the strength Jesus is the King of Kings who was betrayed and abandoned. Know tonight as you come before him and as we pray for you, as your King, he will never betray or abandon you.